Welcome to This Artistic Life. On this podcast, we sit down with professional artists of all disciplines to talk about their journeys, what inspires them, and their unique perspectives from life off the beaten path. Brought to you in part by Artist Relief Tree, a relief fund for artists affected by cancellations due to COVID-19. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Today's guest is Leanne Mizleski from the Wolf Trap Foundation, where she is the Vice President of Opera and Classical Programming and the Executive Producer and Co-Host of Center Stage from Wolf Trap, a nationally syndicated radio program aired on public radio stations across the country. Well, let's dive in here. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to be on this episode of This Artistic Life. Um, for the listeners out there who are unfamiliar with uh, who you are and what you do, can you give us a little brief overview of that info and a little about how you got to where you are now? Sure. So I currently am the vice president for opera and classical programming for the Wolf Trap Foundation, which is in a suburb uh, close to D.C. in Virginia. Um, <clears throat> 90% of what I do is involves Wolf Trap Opera, which is a training company for young artists, has been around. Uh, this year's our 50th anniversary, which is 50? very cool. Nice. 50, yeah. Um, I also work with the National Symphony on their residency with us in the summers, and we book a chamber music series at the Barnes, um, which is our smaller of two venues. The Barnes is like a 400-seat venue, and the Feline Center is a 7,000-seat outdoor amphitheater. So it's a fun place to program for, and it's fun to be in an organization that is not just classical music, but kind of ranges across all different types of music. Um, I'm the first musician in my family. Uh, my folks had a great appreciation for it, and we had records. Uh, Pat Benatar, right next to Pavarotti, next to Earth, Wind, and Fire, <laughs> next to Tex Ritter and Willie Nelson, and um, it was an eclectic mix. So it was just, you know, we listened to everything. Um, when I decided I wanted to go to school for music, I played piano and was in choirs and played flute and violin and French horn. When so I rather than having a bunch of children that all did that, they said, you're just going to be the one child that does one, all the things. The one that does yeah. it all. You know, I was kind of a, a distractible, hyper, high energy, you know, ADHD kid who was a little too precocious for her own good. Mm -hmm. and my folks got a free piano, one of the grand uprights. Um, beater piano for, and they started me with lessons when I was three, I think mostly to kind of keep me out of my mother's hair for an hour a week because right. our babysitter was also the piano teacher. Convenient. Um, <laughs> super convenient. Um, but that really stuck with me. I still play not well anymore, but uh, I still play quite a bit just for my own, um, my own pleasure. It's not a, not anything that I do publicly, but uh, I do love to still play. Um, when I decided I wanted to go to school for music, my folks, made me promise that I would get a teaching degree if I was going to do a performance degree because you know they were both teachers so like there are only two paths in my world you could either be a singer a performer big star or you could be a teacher and my folks were like so let's let's give her a little bit of security and I'm <laughs> I, I resisted at the time but I'm really glad they did I actually did end up um after graduating teaching for a number of years um and I had a great gig with a a great school that allowed me so much creative freedom. Um, my, this was in uh, Western PA around Pittsburgh and my uh, school allowed me to contract members of the Pittsburgh Symphony to be my orchestra for wow. the musical and for, for chorus stuff. So to be able to learn to conduct with, you know, first stand PSO musicians was a huge learning curve and a great opportunity, yeah. um, both for me as a musician, but also, you know, with the, with the students, because there were times where even though I was very young and untested, I, I had an idea about what I wanted to have happen. And of course, the musicians would 
knew each other might have a different idea. So having to kind of get up the courage a couple of times to stop and to say, I'd like to try it another way and to see if I could get them to go with me was a, I remember, it still gets me a little um, nervous when I think about it because I had a lot of respect for them, but I was like, I have to, like, I want it to go like this. Um, so learning how to kind of be the boss, be the boss, stand up, like, you know, just kind of, you know, not digging in if it wasn't something that I really need to dig on, but if it was something I needed to dig in on to like have the courage to do it. Um, yeah. Uh, choosing those battles, right? Um, so I taught for a number of years and then 9-11 uh, happened and everybody was re-examining kind of what they wanted to do. I went back to school. I thought maybe I hadn't given performing enough of a shot. Um, and I went to the University of Maryland uh, to study with Leon Major and Dolores Ziegler and uh, learned in that process that, boy, I loved rehearsal. I loved rehearsal. I loved the beginning of rehearsal when we were all figuring out what to do and it was messy and no one quite knew what was going on and we were just trying to make something together. Uh, I didn't like the performances as much. They mm -hmm. were anticlimactic in some ways uh, between the pressure and between the, the fact that we had finally come to something together and the discovery sometimes felt a little, and of course I was a student, so um, I think the professionals probably feel quite differently about this, but that kind of discovery was a little uh, lost there. So it became pretty obvious. And I was recently married. So the whole being on the road for months away from this guy that I really kind of liked um, <laughs> was not as attractive as it might've been <laughs> before. So uh, Leon was great about helping me figure out what my next steps might be. He he helped me do some uh, directing here in the DC area. Um, and he actually first introduced me to Wolf Trap when he directed Volpone, which was the first commission by Mark Campbell and yeah. John Musto. Um, and that was a real eye opener for me being able to help support an artistic vision without having to spend the time in the practice room or to be on stage was, um, was just life changing. It was really eye opening. So um, I got introduced to the company then and then very nicely harassed the ladies who worked here until I could find a way back in. <laughs> we had a lot of coffee dates where I just wanted to check in over the over the <laughs> intervening years, and um and somehow I ended Don't up. Don't forget back. about me. I'm still here. <laughs> Hi, how are you guys doing? Can I bring you coffee? What are you doing? Tell me what's going on. Yeah. So um yeah, I was you know I'm I've been really lucky with with Leon and Dolores and with uh, Kim Whitman to have some really fantastic mentors and and friends in the business, and it was a it was a really exciting thing to join the staff in 2006 and I've been here since so what was the first position you had there uh, coordinator of artistic mm. administration yeah so really budgets and contracts and spreadsheets and travel itineraries and the, f the fun parts right <laughs> all of that I know I still kind of know how to do those every <laughs> once in a while it's really fun to be like oh something that I don't that I know how to do um although the processes have changed enough that like actually I might think that but I might get into it and be like oh I don't actually know how to do this at all anymore so but the it's a, a fun thing to to think about <laughs> the plus side is from your position though you you know what it takes to do those jobs so you can you can be realistic with your staff it, yeah. it's always weird to me when somebody ends up in arts administration that either didn't work their way through the company um or they come from just a radically different perspective and mm -hmm. they're thrown in at a higher tier position in an mm -hmm. arts organization and then everything clashes and right. Just make it happen. How would you like me to make it happen? There are, <laughs> right. there are like 17 steps to make it happen. Do you, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Especially with the fact that our, in, in the United States, the 
arts administration jobs are often done by performers or people who don't have an education in business or in what they end up doing in an arts organization and you learn about it on the fly and just like learn by doing so many of us i was on a call last weekend with um Catherine Smith and Michael Eagle and uh, Ashley Magnus. So Catherine from Madison, uh, Michael Eagle from Des Moines and uh, Ashley from Chicago Opera Theater. And we were all like, I think we have like a business minor between the four of us. Definitely. And the rest of us are all, you know, came to it from performing. And there is a learning curve, but, and I, I will say it is a significant learning curve, right? There, there are so many things because to learn about when you're producing like it's mm-hmm. a, it's not the same as a as a finance job right like there are so many kind of eggs that you're juggling in this basket to make something happen and with all of these people and all of the um they're just a lot it's a multifaceted kind of job so learning on the job how to do it i think is a way to make sure that you've got all of those boxes checked oh yeah know? absolutely um, i totally agree with that yeah. uh especially especially in an organization that is like with yours is both training and performance. Mm-hmm. So it's, it would be different if it was strictly a performing company and you, you know, you hire people in, they've got a gig, you produce it, they walk away, but, um, or if it was just a training program, but you're balancing both and which means your workflow at WTO is going to be very different from other people's workflow. Also yeah. the time of year, you know, you're, you're summer based. You're not rolling year round for this specific perspective. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I think that learning on the job is um, is honestly invaluable if if you learn the right way, <laughs> or if you're in yeah. an organization that has the ability to actually train you on how to do it, as opposed yeah. to we don't know how this works. Good luck. Good luck. Have a have a great time. Yeah, I will say too. One of the things that is a huge benefit to being situated in the, as the the only producing arm of this larger foundation that does a lot of presenting and a lot of early childhood education is that we have uh, access to to peers who are so knowledgeable and so committed to best practice and so committed to audience experience and artist experience that, um, and they're great team players too. Like we, there are so many musicians on staff and artists here as well who are in all the different departments. So it's wonderful to be able to have a kind of question or a, trying to find a solution to something and have such a deep knowledge base of people who not just know how we do it, but have great contacts in the, in the field to be able to say, well, let's see how this other organization does it. Um, It's a great, uh, I've, it's been wonderful to have that kind of information sharing to really try to make the best choices for our people, especially now during COVID times when we're all trying to figure out how to move forward, having that kind of information sharing and people being really generous with each other has been really so helpful. I was just going to ask if that was a big part of the conversation last year. You know, I mean, it's it had to have been a little weird because each state was doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And even in some places, even each city was doing things differently. And so but I assume that there was an open dialogue amongst a bunch of you guys saying we're trying this with our company. Have has have you tried this? Does it work? Or we yeah. we found that this specifically works, you know, in case you're interested. Um, yeah, I, you know, I mean the opera world is so small, which is in many ways, it's a wonderful thing because there are, you know, you can pick up the phone and say, how are you handling this? Mm-hmm. Um, and and to be honest, over this last year, there have been just as many times where I've sat on a call or a Zoom meeting, we've got a bunch of um, 
different meetings set up by Opera America so, to facilitate this kind of information sharing. Uh, there have been so many times where, you know, half the time you'll get a really great answer or a really great idea. And then half the time everyone's like, oh, I don't know yet. Mm, We're thinking mm -hmm. maybe this, but we don't know. What are you guys thinking to do? Is there some way that we can like share some information so that we can figure out what's the best for our organizations? It's been wonderful to have that kind of information flow back and forth. Um, I don't know that it's made anybody's job really any easier. And I will say <laughs> that I feel like so many of these calls, like, and even ours today, like the first half is like, Oh my gosh, what is happening with the world? And then you kind of get down to breast tacks, right? Yep. Like it's like, but we all kind of need that moment of like, it's it's hard for everybody, right? It's not just hard for me. It's not just like, me. It's, yep. <laughs> and to have at least that kind of support with everyone being like, yep, it is hard for everybody. What's going on? And yep. everyone like you hit somebody on a different day and they're like, I have bandwidth. Tell me about that. Or right, you know, and everyone yeah. kind of takes turns. So I think it's it's a uh, the community has been lovely to kind of be in contact with everybody and, and try to figure this out, even though we're doing it differently, but to at least have those conversations and ask those questions has been yeah. super helpful. And it, it, it drives home the concept that I work on with, with my clients on a regular basis. And that is no matter what the field is, I am, I will always push for collaboration over competition anytime, because if if you guys all felt like you were competing with each other, those conversations wouldn't happen. Right. Those that support just wouldn't be it wouldn't be a community, it would be us versus them. But with the collaborative mindset, you know, you're willing to help an organization that may also be trying to cast the same people you want to cast. And that's, that's not what it's about. It's about it's, it's about creating the art the right way, and right. supporting the community, which is and fantastic. And here's the thing, like we we all make better art when we lead with generosity, right? When we mm. when we collaborate, when we lead with generosity, and the art suffers when the situations don't allow us to. And I, you know, in some ways, this whole COVIDian thing has made us all a little um, stingy because our resources are so our time, like everything is harder, right? Yeah. Um, but I would say it's probably more of a call to really look at how we can help each other mm -hmm. and how we can help the artists who are so affected by this. I mean, I think there's a real concern that we're going to lose really important voices because they just are not able to keep going. And to be honest, as a singer who who decided not to, to pursue singing after a certain point, like I get it. Yeah. I get that there are other things that will take that attention away. I am not saying that I am like one of those people that the world is gonna miss their singing career for, but I am saying that like there are so many voices that and perspectives, like individual perspectives that we are going to lose if we can't find a way to find opportunities to bring people together to to be in front of each other and make this music again. Yeah. Um, and the only way we're going to be able to do it is if we're not trying to like say that these are all mine and this right. is how I do it. Like we have to work across those boundaries for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and. I was super impressed um, being on site for Wolf Trap last year um, with the the diligence that your staff took to follow strict protocols. Did you have anybody end up testing positive last summer? Nobody. And that blows my mind. That blows Dude, I mean, my you, mind. You were one of like, I think three people who were on site who were not like 
like who were kind of outside our little yeah. our bubble. Yeah, you had right? the bubble, was, yeah. I mean, it was you, it was Denise Graves, and it was Renee Fleming. So that's the company that you were in last summer. <laughs> I will um, take that company any day. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we did, and I won't say that I didn't lose an awful lot of sleep over it, but I'm so proud of what the team did what this the way the singers and the artists pulled together like it really was a team effort because we didn't know what we were going into we had a lot of um there was just so much that was unknown mm-hmm. um and there were some, some singers who weren't that like they didn't know us they would didn't feel safe enough to be with us and that's fine right um but the folks who were with us were really careful were really respectful um and we didn't have any cases and we still were able to make some music together um, yeah which was incredible. Um, yeah. I, I know most people, I mean, the the other gigs that I had, the other um, young artist programs, training programs I had lined up were um, were canceled or pushed a full season. Um, and you guys, you guys cranked along. Can you discuss some of the most significant challenges um, that you guys dealt with and how you overcame them and, and retained open and got zero cases? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, boy, I think some of what we did that I think contributed to the success was communication. And that was hard because there was so much that was changing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those young artists, like every other week we were on a zoom call where, you know, I was like, we don't know anything different, but Hey, it's happy hour. Cheers. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? um, we, you know, the, the housing and the travel was something that we had to really look into because um of course, nobody lived here. Yeah. We had to bring everybody in. We had to get them here safely. And at that time, testing was not as prevalent as it is now. So right. we were being advised to only test people if they uh, were showing symptoms. So there was a lot of stress on the singers about that. I will not lie. Um, I think a lot of it was just because there was so much unknown Um so I, the housing and the travel was one, the schedule was one, making sure that everybody had enough bandwidth if we did have rehearsals. Like normally, a normal summer festival rehearsal schedule is bananas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is like a million different rehearsals happening at all different times of the day for like 17,000 different projects. We have a, an a equation that we like to use for Wolf Trap in a normal season that is just N plus five. N is the number of things that you can fit into a summer season. And we like to do N plus five. We just like to <laughs> make sure everyone is doing something fun, right? Um, so there, we had to take a real step back from that perspective um, and look at the way we scheduled our spaces, of course, you know, what could we do outside? And then of course, being outside, is the weather gonna cooperate? I think there were a couple of days where it was like, I don't know, 95 degrees and humid outside. And we had outside rehearsals and people were melting, but they still were doing it. You know, like mm-hmm. how much water and Gatorade can we provide to make sure that you can at least get in the rehearsal? Um, so there were lots of just kind of small considerations we were trying to make as well as the big considerations. Do we move that indoors? Can we have that many people in our indoor space? Um, our operations folks and I did a lot of work on the HVAC system to make sure that it was up to snuff to make sure that it was powered and and that we had the as high a filtration rate as we could get at that time. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the foundation actually stayed away from these spaces while we were here, which was a wonderful way for the the larger organization to take care of us a little bit because mm-hmm. we were the only people who were um, 
on site for the most part. So while everyone is working from home, just being able to say, if you don't have to come in during this six week period, don't come in because we're going to have singers in the building and that would allow us to keep ourselves separate from them. Yeah. So that was um, super helpful too. And we only, we scheduled shorter days and shorter rehearsal periods, one for all of the COVID stuff, but also things are harder. Like yeah. getting, getting that performance energy up, you know, having that moment where you realize that you are singing with other people in a space and like, the moment where you have a little bit of a freak out, like, are we all really safe or are we all putting each other? I mean, there's a lot that, um, there's a lot of noise around personal safety and mm -hmm. each person was different. Some people were um, quite comfortable, some people were quite uncomfortable. So as an organization trying to manage that risk continuum, that risk yeah. aversion continuum, how do we take care so that the person who's the most nervous about this feels just as safe as the person who feels pretty okay about, you know, doing anything. Yeah. And how do you establish those policies to make sure that everyone doesn't just feel safe, but actually is safe. And, yeah. I, you know, I'm not sure that we did that because we weren't really sure what was safe at that point. We were still right. wiping down our groceries and right, exactly. you know, yeah. all of that, but, but, um, but I think we all trust it. There was a lot of open communication. There was a lot of trust and a lot of talking to make sure that we kind of knew where the problems were. I'm sure mm -hmm. there were problems that I didn't hear about, um, but I feel like there were lots that we did hear about that we were able to address. Um, yeah. And uh, and the fact that we were able to show folks that um, that they could still work, that we could still make music, that we could get them out in front of digital audiences and digital casting directors and um, in a more robust way felt good, felt good to be able to bring them in. Um, how how was that um, that transition to a digital space? Um, mm -hmm. How'd that feel from within? Yeah, I mean, it felt like we were completely underprepared and it felt like we did not give it anywhere near as much time as we needed to, quite frankly. And yeah. I will commend um, Crystal Manage and David Paul, who are our directors for those projects that we did on site because they, looking back on it and looking back on how much rehearsal time they had and how much time we had to process video and all of that. Like, I actually am not sure how we got it done. <laughs> like, <laughs> the fact that it happened and it happened beautifully and it happened within the time frames that we said, I'm like, like that was kind of crazy pants. Um, so we learned a lot from it, I'll be honest. Um, and some of the things I think we learned is that we could go in that direction, but the thing that we all missed so much were the other people. Yeah. The audience was just having that that communal experience um, in some ways it um, like it was wonderful to do and to be able to experiment, but it also was a very bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and I mean, opera specifically is, and this is a conversation I've had repeatedly for the last year is that it, it's a, it exists in a live place. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not that um, it's a thing and we can either do it live or do it digital or, you know, it's mm -hmm. a, it inherently is a live art form. And so everything else just feels like uh, a Band-Aid, um, just trying to just maintain it until it can go back to that live space. Um, do you foresee any of the changes that you made over the last year um, being long lasting? Um, 
what what's going to be significantly changed moving forward as yeah. as people vaccinate and we can get back into the live space yeah so um i mean i really do think that for us being being in a live space being in um in that kind of current performance mode is the goal and we'll get back there a little bit this summer we will definitely be back there next summer but the things that i think we will take forward um one of the things that was really successful for us last year was a, a virtual audition day. Mm -hmm. And we did uh, uh, two days of colleague auditions um, that at first I was like, no one's going to come to this. You know, usually in a usual year when people are coming to see shows, we get maybe, I don't know, six to 12 people who come for auditions on one mm -hmm. or two days during the summer for to see our singers and to be able to kind of hear them in the space. I think last year, just because of timing and the way it all played out, I, we decided to do uh, an online auditions with our colleagues. We did do it live streamed um, and then also provided afterwards, excuse me, some uh, mastered audio tracks so they could actually hear what it sounded like in the space, depending on what the, uh, you know, what the, the headphone situation was. I, it was really important to be able to have it was really important for those young artists to be able to be heard in real time and in the way that, but also to have that clarity of the actual voice, because if this is the one thing that was showing their momentum over the last year, it just had to be good. It had to yeah. be compelling, right? Yeah. Um, we ended up with over 80 people for each of those days that we did last year, tuning in from all over the US and Europe. Um, so the reach of that was so, great that it is something that I think I'll continue for next year. Yeah. Um, I, but I'm, I don't know. know if you know this. I also jumped on to one of those audition days mm -hmm. um, to see what the final result was like. And I was impressed, not just with um, the, the tech and the flow on your end, but the response in general um, and the way that it was dialogued. I, I, I I want to say on site, but in the, in the chat space mm -hmm. on YouTube, where you guys did the live stream. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I wasn't sure what the response was going to be like for the people that were listening mm -hmm. and how um, gung ho they were going to be about this massive shift, but it was so smooth and worked so well that it seems like a no brainer to push at least first round auditions into a digital mm -hmm. space. And mm -hmm. it's funny because I've been working on this with a couple of my colleagues for the last three years and we couldn't get the traction because everybody wants to hear everything live. And I understand why you want to hear singers live, but there are things you can tell at least for that first round in a recording right off the bat. This is a voice I'm interested in. This is not a voice I'm interested in now, but I might be interested in later. Like yeah. pros can tell that in the first 10 seconds, even in a live stream. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really pleased to hear that you're going to move forward with some of that aspect of things, because I feel like it just makes so many things more efficient, uh, more efficient and more accessible if, yeah. you know, just to be able to hear everybody from one spot is going to reduce some of this, uh, some of this gatekeeping, as far as being able to get to New York or be able to get to mm -hmm. all of these places, it's going to take that cost differential. And as, as a kid who like could never have gone to perform arts program abroad or anything like that, because like, like I said, my, uh, my folks were both teachers. We just didn't have that kind of cash laying around yeah. to like send me to Europe for a summer. Um, so 
as someone who's always kind of thinking about ways that we might be able to make it more cost effective or to be able to make it less of an impact for those talents that don't have the kind of deep pockets, I think it's a great equalizer. Yeah. I grew up in Western New York. I grew up in Rochester. So it's like a five hour drive or an hour long flight. And I still spent so much money going to New York City to do auditions that either I wasn't right for, I didn't have the connections for, the chances of me getting the gig were epically low, um, just all that kind of stuff. And had I not had to put that capital forward, um, I would have been able to spend it on professional development, on so many other things, as opposed to throwing down four to $800 every time you want to go audition. Yeah. Yeah. And God forbid you can't line those auditions up in a row. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and we are one of the worst outliers because of the way we cast. So we have to hear everybody before we make a decision as far as the rep is. So I'm not going out looking for a Giovanni or going out looking for a specific role. So there's no way for you to gauge whether or not it's going to be a productive audition if you sing for Wolf Trap, because I don't even know what I'm doing. You can't audition for something specifically because who knows what Wolf Trap's going to do next summer. Yeah. Um, so I recognize too that that's a little, um, it's hard for folks to kind of wrap their head around how to best strategize for us. And we also yeah. go out fairly early most years just because of that dichotomy like if if i've got a singer who's got an offer from me and from glimmerglass or santa fe and they decide to take that other that gig with somebody else if i've got a production that i want them to helm that production goes away and i've got to start from scratch with all the repertoire all over again so yeah. um it is a it is a delicate dance and especially with my my colleagues in the industry are very understanding about the fact that um that we can't play nicely in that audition with them, but I'm glad that they're, I'm glad that we're all friends and I'm glad that they understand because, um, because it, it does make things a little weird for, for singers to try to figure out whether or not they should be singing for us and yeah. when, because there's not that concrete, oh, they've got this many mezzo spots. I've got this kind of a chance for it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. I mean, with that in mind, um, because so many other people are listening to singers, unless they're management, they're listening to singers based on a casting uh, a program. Um, because that's not the way that you listen to singers, what do you listen to, what do you listen for in your auditions? Because I feel like it would be a little bit different than if you were casting something really specific. Yeah, it is. Um, so I think the, uh, how to answer this question the best, um, I think the first thing that we always kind of listen for are those compulsory, like tone quality, intonation, like all of the things that are, you know, deal breakers, right? Um, the baseline, yeah. The baseline, you know, the compulsories. Um, and then it's whether that person excites us in some way. Like, I'll be honest, for the, for the Feline artists, the top tier, most of those folks we've been watching for years, you know, we get to know them when they are coming out of conservatory, when they sing for the studio program, or when they win a competition, or when we judge them in a competition. We keep a pretty extensive database, like everybody does, of all the people that we hear and kind of what they sing and, and when and how. Um, so some of it, if if we've been watching them is to see what kind of growth we see from year to year to kind mm -hmm. of measure that to see like what they've been working on how the voice is changing what direction they feel like they're going in. Um, so we're, we're kind of tracking that but in the room. 
I think it's the same as everybody, except without that, it's a little more open. I'm not looking for a, a Giovanni, but I am looking for someone to kind of come in and blow me away in some mm -hmm. way. Like, and then if they do, then that puts them on the list for like, oh, could we use them in something? Mm -hmm. So it's one of the reasons that we've been able to um, do some weird rep to really focus on some amazing artists that have come through to be able to say, this is a perfect thing for you. We really want you to come to sing this. Yeah. Um, it allows us that flexibility because we're not trying to put a, a square peg in a round hole, right? To say yeah. we're doing a Giovanni and you'd be great for something else, but we really want to bring you. So would you, you know, it, yeah. but there has to be some it has to be the compulsories. There has to be the the kind of excitement in the room. And there has to, I have to be able to get to know a little bit about who you are as an artist when you walk in the room. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the thing. It's only, you know, it's 10 minutes that I get to spend with you and I'm going to hang. Uh, uh, if, if I hire you, I'm going to bring you and house you and costume you and give you an opportunity that I hope is going to make people like remember who you are, like write, you know, reviews in the paper and, and, talk from colleagues about, oh, I remember when I saw this person sing this role at Wolf Trap. Um, if it is perfect and sterile and everything your coach has always told you to do, but I don't know who you are, it's harder for me to take a risk on that. And it, the voice might be beautiful and the, you know, I mean, you could be doing everything right, but there does still have to be a vulnerability. And I think for me, I'm almost always drawn to the people who are not, who are brave enough to be vulnerable in mm. it, oh, in this the weirdest of all job interviews I swear yeah um it's hard I mean I like I think that's why it's always so impressive because if you can dial up that vulnerability and show me by the way you walk in the room by the little banter that we have by the way you present yourself in those arias there's almost always a moment where I'm like this could be, this person could be really fun or this person could, could do something great at Wolf Trap. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, the, like I said, the Fellines, we kind of have been tracking for a number of years. The studio is always like uh, Christmas because you don't have any idea who these people are and they walk right. in and they open their mouths and you're like, holy cow, that's amazing. Um, and that's always fun because we don't have quite as much um, knowledge of them. So it really does. It's really like, opening a present and not knowing what's inside yeah. um, the felines are it's a little little bit more mercenary just because we've been tracking them right yeah but whereas the studio is a little more legit first impression first impression like yeah. wow that is that is something and you know of course because the studio is is um a little bit younger there are going to be technical issues there are going to be yeah. things that they're working on right um but it also is fun to be able to think about you know, a voice type in the studio and the corresponding kind of mentor singer in the Fellines, because it's not a formal mentorship program really, but as a studio artist, you learn so much more from watching people who are three, five years ahead of you than Hell you yeah. do if I talk at you or if, you know, somebody else talks at you. So making sure that some of those pairings that those um, relationships in between the two tiers are going to be fruitful and there's going to be some information sharing and and that the I, I think the thing that I love about singers too is that the Fellines always are happy to do that for the studio artists like there's a in in normal years and it's the thing I missed last year and I think I'll probably miss a little bit this year is that kind of cross-tier communication that everyone usually has yeah um, because that's a, that 
culture is such a valuable part of what we do. And I, um, I don't know that we'll get back to hundred percent this summer, but I hope by next summer we can we can have opera camp back in the <laughs> back in the building. <laughs> do you um, do you have preferences when it comes to um, rep with people, particular people that you're hearing for the very very first time, like? Do you like to hear stuff that you know really well, or do you like it when they bring weird stuff to the table? Mm -hmm. I'm of two minds on this. Um, as an educator and as a um, like as someone who is listening to hire, I want to hear stuff that I've heard before, and I know yeah. it's boring, and I know nobody wants to sing Mozart anymore. Although that makes me a little sad. Um, well, because good Mozart is fantastic. As hard as you know. What? Yeah, yeah. Hard AF. Um, so if you make it sound easy, like that tells me a lot. Gold star. Especially if um, you're a tenor. <laughs> oh my God, right? For real, guys. He was not <laughs> nice to them. Um, but uh, I I love new music. It's kind of oh, my entry into the field was doing premieres and first runs of things. So I I love new work and I love seeing something that I don't know. Uh that I on a list like oh I don't know this piece and I will almost always ask about it um what I'm asking is you know I'll say tell me about the piece what I'm not actually looking for is the context in the opera because mm -hmm. that's that I can I, I will wiki that if it's if it's a cool piece but I'm looking for tempo language form is it ABA is it through composed is there a you know are you going to like put some fireworks at the end because if I'm asking for it in the context of the list I want to make sure that what I'm asking for is going to help me answer some questions that I have about the voice that I'm hearing right yeah. so that first aria you get to pick because you get to show me what your best shot is and the other things on your list are hopefully going to enrich my view of what you're singing yeah I'm also going to look to see if there's something that that I'm nervous about in that first aria that I can either corroborate or rule it out with the second aria. So yeah. um, if the contemporary piece will do that for me, I will always take the contemporary piece. If the contemporary piece won't do it for me, I will, I've got to go, I will go with Mozart a hundred percent of the time. Like yeah. I think we did a, <laughs> I think Morgan did a, a meme with, that just said those six little words. Can we hear the Mozart please? Give me <laughs> Like, guilty is charged but you know and there is something um to be said about you know when you're hearing four to six hundred auditions in the course of an audition tour being able to take it back to those basics even if um even if they're not your your favorite thing to sing for us to hear you along with other people singing that same rep yeah. Um, you don't have to sing it the same way. That's not what we're asking for. But to be able to know, um, to be able to have those kind of concrete markers as far as what the voice does well and what the voice struggles with is definitely. It's just a diagnostic tool. It's not a yeah. value judgment as much as a diagnostic tool. Exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about um, when I used to audition. I, the, the first role I ever sang was the Count in Figaro, yeah. and um, so I would bring that aria a lot because I can be like, no, not only can I sing the aria, but I've played the role. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I didn't, I always hated starting with it because I knew that if I started with that, then they would never ask for anything else. Cause the, if you sing that whole thing, not only is it long, but it shows you almost everything you need to hear. Right. Yeah. And so I would try and start with something else, particularly in something that was not Italian. And inevitably the result was great. Now, can we hear I la causa 
the recit and then from the triplets to the end. <laughs> because That's like you mean. said, it's a diagnostic tool. They'd be like, okay, yeah. we can now judge Seko recit based on the first three pages. <laughs> and oh. then we know if his voice moves fast enough to do the triplets and if the F sharp is there and then we can just end it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, that's mean though. I, I have a, I love. I used to hearing, get that so often. I love the hearing time. the full piece. I want to hear two full pieces from the Fellines. I want to hear at least one piece and then the, the monologue, the studio artists have to do a monologue because it's. Um, Which I'm a huge fan of, I'm a huge proponent for, yeah. for monologue stuff. I mean, I was, a I did theater acting, so I was a just yeah. a straight actor. And the education you get from preparing monologues mm -hmm. is so unique and uh, forces um, just a, a stage flow that's unlike anything else. And it, it's hard to take opera into plays, but it's really easy to take theater acting conceptually into the opera space. And it and it can be so valuable. So I love the fact you do monologues. Yeah. It scares yeah. the hell out of most opera singers, but I love yeah, well, it. Well, of course, you know. And so I, the reason that we do it, um, and again, I can't, I went to a theater school too. I went to Carnegie Mellon for my undergrad. So like, yeah. like the monologue was the thing that you had to do, right? Um, the the thing that it showed. So as a grad student, as a, a undergrad or a grad student, oftentimes you're singing rep that you are right on the cusp of being able to really embody, mm -hmm. but you're not quite there. So you're still thinking about technical things or you're still, you've got like the big washes of emotion down, but you don't have that kind of specificity of dramatic action that you might need or that we might be looking for, say from a, from a singer who is a number of years older and has had some big house experience or has had those kind of principal role um, moments. So the monologue allows us to see who you are and again we're trying to figure out who you are so that we can like figure out if we're a good fit together yeah so that choice like the choice of the monologue like what you pick one of my favorites and and he knows this ben edquist the baritone for his first studio audition did a dramatic reading of beyonce's single ladies put a ring nice and i'm cracking up a little just thinking about it because it was like it was so great it was so great um, and the fact that, I mean, it's been years since he's been a studio artist, he would be able to tell you the the year, but I mean, and he was a fleeing artist after that, you know what I mean? Like he's, um, he's had a great, he's in the middle of a great career, I think, COVID notwithstanding. Yeah. But the fact that that, first of all, that he picked a song and that he delivered it so well, like has stayed with us for forever. Yeah. Um, there have been people who have done songs stuff with, with different, um, like different song lyrics, people who have done things from the West Wing or from um, uh, contemporary TV shows or movies. Like it doesn't, uh, like we're not looking for Shakespeare. We're looking for like right. one minute, something you really relate to. So the subject that you pick is always gonna be interesting to us. Like we had some Schitt's Creek, you know? Yeah. I mean, like there's all kinds of things that you can do. Find something you love, it's a minute long. And if right. you biff on the words, like we're not sitting there with the side, like making sure that you hit all the things. We just want to see who you are. We just yeah. want to like get that bead on your personality and whether you have that kind of intellectual curiosity and whether you're brave enough to like really deliver. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's probably not going anywhere anytime soon, sadly. <laughs> Sorry, <Nice>. guys. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned that you've heard upwards of over 10,000 singers. Ten, yeah. I say ten thousand auditions. Yeah, ten thousand over the course of, of your career, which means yeah. you are 
uniquely qualified to answer the following <laughs> question, which is, what are what are some of the trends that have come and gone, um, particularly ones that you're really glad to see leave? Um, yeah. <laughs> what they've been replaced by? <laughs> um, boy, it's a great question. Uh, so, you know, there are always kind of cycles in repertoire, like what is hot and what is not um, as far, you know, whether like there was a period where Sotsvela was really in, there was a time where Operetta was really in. Um, there was one year where we had almost no Mozart, which I was like, oh, I'm going to die a little bit inside, but, you know, okay. Um, so that's always interesting to me, like if you are... Like I think the uh, the bell song is coming back for super high sopranos, yep. which is great. Um, the new music that's coming out, uh, you know, hearing a lot of stuff that is that has been written in the last 10, 15 years is always interesting to me. Um, and it's not something that um, we when we first started, we weren't hearing a lot of contemporary music on the mm -hmm. audition tour. So having that um and hearing stuff that I've never, like, I haven't even had a chance to see yet in the theater is always kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, I think there is a, there's a shift as far as presentation about the way people come into auditions and what they're wearing and all of that, which I think is actually great. I think there's, there's much less, it's much less formal than it was. It used to be that you really dressed for that audition as if you were dressing to do an interview at the bank. Right. I mean, you were um, there was a certain kind of standard uniform for ladies. It was a dress that was kind of either knee length or longer, closed toed shoes, jewel toned for the guys. It was a suit. It was, you know, crazy if it was t no tie or tie, you know. Um, and this year, the one of the things or this year, last year, um, there's a lot more freedom about what people are bringing into the, the room and being able to see again. You know, we're trying to figure out who you are as a person and like how we would fit being able to really see people reflect their personality and what they bring into the, what they wear into the room has been great. Um, and I have so many notes that I'm like, oh, my God, cute shoes. Oh, my God, beautiful captain. Oh, my God, I love that brooch. You know, like there's but it's so wonderful to see the people for whom their personal style or like they, that is a big part of who they are to see them actually bring it into the room. I just love yeah. it. Like, yeah. and I'll be honest, like if we're going to hire you to do a fully staged role, we're going to put you in a costume, we're gonna right. put you in a wig, like, yeah. you know, so I'd rather kind of have an idea of what, what you want to wear, like who you are. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm a big opponent for fun. that. I, I hear less singers per year than you do it's probably between 300 and 400 every year mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll sit and, and and consult for different companies to hear auditions mm -hmm. and usually what i do when i'm in the room is i'm the guy on the laptop looking at digging into everything that the singer does so that mm -hmm. from a producer's perspective a media producer's perspective or, or marketing perspective i can say here are all the other things that this singer also can offer to your company Mm -hmm. um, and that's usually the reason that I'm in the room. But I always love when people come in with something that's outside of the uniform, you know, yeah. uh, because not only does it make them more memorable to me, but I feel like they, they're okay being themselves. Um, and there's a confidence that is required there that I appreciate. I mean, like it is still a job interview, right? I mean, right. we, we joke every year about doing the pajama audition where we just wear pajamas behind the, the 
audition room, but I still like, I have a hard time wearing jeans into the audition room, even though I am sitting behind the table and nobody can see my legs, Yeah. but I still struggle with it because there is a little bit of, I want people to know that I respect their time and that I yeah. respect the fact that they're, um, you know, putting themselves out there in a very specific way. So it's incumbent upon me as, as someone who's in the room sharing that experience with them that I at least reflect that I am, I am there for the same work and to be able to value what they're doing as well. So yeah, there is, I mean, you know, there have been innumerable conversations about, you know, heel height for ladies, you know, can you sing in flats? Should you wear open toed shoes? Um, and I feel like most of, uh, maybe not all of them, but I, you know, there are similar criticisms for guys as far as vests as far as jacket no jacket as far right. as you know what they decide to wear um but i do i mean clothes are a kind of armor right they yeah. they protect us they make us feel stronger and braver and so whatever you wear into that audition should help you and not work against you i think that's the thing like the things that i've seen work against people is if they are dressed too formally or if they have like scarves and things that take on a life of their own because they mm -hmm. always do you know like you've got this beautiful scarf and you get nervous and there's the air conditioner thing is blowing right at you and all of a sudden it's trying to strangle you or it gets cut in your rings or something and you have to break character like there's any number of things like that that can happen and go wrong but um but if you if you feel good if you feel like you look good you feel good you sing better right you just like it's it's basic human psychology i i usually say uh I like to use the expression, if it looks professional, but you feel like you can conquer the world, like that's, it, it, it does psychologically add so much to you feeling prepared for the audition or, um, or feeling like you should be there because I know that imposter syndrome is a real thing when you're a performer. Um, and some people just psych themselves out when they've got the goods, they got the audition, they did what it takes to be there. And then they psych themselves out. If you can, help that in any way right i mean because that's the most tragic thing you know and from sitting behind the table when you can see that um the performer that you're watching has kind of mentally like gone off into left field or are still thinking about the thing that happened like three measures ago or um it's just not in their body in a specific way yeah like that's i mean i almost i know we can't do this but i almost wish that we could just sing barefoot because i think everybody sings better barefoot because you're grounded even though i love the look of heels but like you know there's a part of me that wants to be like okay so we're all going to pretend to be carmen and we're going to take off our shoes and sing the aria but i think i'm probably not quite um <laughs> i probably am not quite uh uh it, it, permissive enough to like ask people to do that but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but I do think that there's something to be said about just taking ownership of the space and of your body and being realizing that the people on the other side of the table are there to hear the gifts that you bring specifically like I'm not looking to hear somebody's interpretation a la Pavarotti when they walk in like I want to hear what you do he's He's not with us anymore. We've got recordings. We can spend time with those, but that's not what we're here in the room for. Yeah. I want to hear what you have. Whatever you can do to take away the barriers to just have a good time and sing is, yeah. is going to be better for both of us. Right. You mentioned in our prep that you have seen many auditions where either something ludicrous happened, something crazy, and <laughs> but it was it didn't hurt the audition or it was able to be yeah. salvaged in some yes. way. Yes. I mean, so I think that's the other thing, like when things start to go off the rails, like 
like, it doesn't mean that they have to go off the rails into the toilet. Like, I mean, they can, you can turn them around. One of my favorite, um, this is not an audition story, but for some inspiration, if you listen to Ella Fitzgerald recording of Mac the Knife from Berlin, mm-hmm. she starts the tune. It was a popular, um, a popular tune at the time. She starts singing it and they start modulating every verse up. So it's getting really high. She forgets the words and she improvises like, and she's calling herself out. Like we tried to do Mac the knife. She's something about cash. You know, I mean, it's hysterical, but she sings the whole thing. She doesn't stop the band. (laughs) They modulate 17 bajillion times until she's singing like way up, but she just keeps going. And I think that's such a great instruction to be in the moment and just be like, I don't know what's going to happen next. We're just going to go with it is a, a skill that is hard to, hard to get, but is so valuable that kind yeah. of, you know, looking forward. So I have two great um, short stories. One is I was actually just on a call with him yesterday and he brought it up. So I'm going to feel free to bring it up again. Um <laughs> We were in Chicago, uh, Kim Whitman and I listening to auditions, and we had uh, a young baritone by the name of Will Liverman who was scheduled for an audition. And we had a call that he's running late, he can't find us. And it's almost time for his audition. And this young man bursts through the door and he's like, I'm ready. And we were like, okay, we're on like the third or fourth floor of a building. And it looked like maybe he had just run up all those stairs. Uh We're like, do you need a minute? He's like, no, I'm okay. Go. What are you going to sing? I'm going to sing Largo from um, Figaro. (laughs) Okay. It's still one of the fastest Largos I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, and he nailed it. Like, I mean, it was great. So much adrenaline, but it was so fast. And I just remember being like, who is this guy? Like, (laughs) busy was crazy the other one and this is also another person that we um we hired although she's not singing anymore um for the studio years ago I think it was maybe the first year of the studio and she'll know if she hears this who I'm talking about um (laughs) she she came into the room uh and she wanted to sing Kunigunda and one of the coaches on the table at that point loved that, loved Candide, was like, oh, I love that song, and had a little reaction to it that was really positive, but you could tell she hadn't planned on someone having that kind of reaction, so it yeah. caught her off guard a little bit, and she started off, and she started to go up on the words, like, glitter and be gay, that's the part I play, la, 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 la. Paris, France, forced to bend my soul to a sordid role circumcised by bitter bitter circumstance to which everyone goes did she (laughs) and everyone is in like kinds of stage like and of of trying to figure out what's going on i i'm making eye contact with her like keep going keep i'm right here with you everyone is is trying to hold their stuff together she sings the rest of the song awesomely does not miss a beat gets all the all the syncopations like in tune like ends it hot damn leaves the room we all fall out of course because we've been <laughs> holding it in for what like six minutes and the poor next person comes in and sees like i swear the pianist was on the floor like just like we were all just losing it and we we're like we're gonna need a minute um <laughs> but i mean even with that even though i'm sure she could tell that something had happened and she wasn't sure what it was, but mm-hmm. she kept going. There she you go. kept going. She like, I mean, really kind of threw herself into the piece. 
Um, and we definitely made her an offer that she accepted because like, if you can, if you can recover from that and just kind of move on from it, like that was impressive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it doesn't have to be like, if it goes off the rails, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. And there is always something to be said about saying, can I start that again? And taking, yeah. not just doing that, but can I start that again? And then taking the 30 seconds to clear your head instead of just jumping right in and then doing it again the same way, like ask to start again, take a couple deep breaths and then start up when you're really ready to give it that second shot. I feel like a lot of young artists don't realize that, that they can take that kind of control of an audition. Yeah. Uh, they feel like they have to come in, do what they prepared to do, crank it out and then hope for the best as opposed to settling into the space. I, one of my favorite stories to tell, my undergrad audition. So I went to undergrad, I started as a piano major, um, but I had been taking lessons with one of the adjunct voice faculty at my undergrad. And so I was like, well, I would love more scholarship, so I'm gonna you know, do a singing audition as well. This is clearly before I uh, switched my major to vocal performance. Um, and so I, I to this, the funny part is I can't remember what I was singing. I don't remember what I auditioned with because mm-hmm. um, this would have been 98. <laughs> um, but I do remember that it was six pages long because the pianist, I knew the pianist, and they asked me to send them the uh, a, like a PDF so they could print it out at home and then they were going to put it together in the binder themselves. I was like awesome when the pianist when the pianist has specific requests i try and grant those requests yep. Yep. and i did and she did not put them in the binder nor were they hole punched so she just put them up on the music desk and something happened oh, on like no. the third page and they all came cascading off of the piano <laughs> and based on where i was i was not paying attention to her um and i was you know i was really in the moment and i realized that out of the corner of my eye, I see that she's leaning over the bench, trying to play <laughs> the music from the floor. Oh God! Oh God! At which point, I just, I, I, I honestly, I, I broke yeah. it and I laughed. Yeah. And I was like, "Hang on, just a sec. Why don't we yeah. regroup?" And I helped her pick up the music and put it back. Mm-hmm. And she's like, "I'm so sorry." And I was like, "It's totally fine. It's not yeah. the end of the world. It is what yeah. it is." Yeah. And I was like, "Why don't we start from here? Mm-hmm. We'll take a sec." Yeah. And we started from there and went through and. The audition panel thought it was hilarious because we had like we allowed ourselves to laugh at it and laugh at ourselves. And I got scholarships like I clearly got in. I got scholarships. It was fine. But like that's one of those things that I thought I was going to be scared to death of having happen. And then Mm -hmm. once it happened, I was just like, ah, it's fine. Right. Right? (laughs) You know, I think it is. I, we try to be a really um, welcoming audition panel because we like we get the fact that it's hard to put yourself out there. There's, a you know finding a new space, singing in a new room, maybe with a new pianist, there's a lot of unknowns, but being able to remember that we actually, we're humans on the other side of the table too. And sometimes yeah. like we'll talk to people when they come in just to kind of see how they're doing or, or what's going on. Um, I know some people don't like that. There are some audition panels who just want you to come in and sing and leave. But again, it's I, I feel like a broken record, but we want to know who you are. Yeah. We want to figure out who you are. And we can't do that with without trying a couple different ways so right. you know if you're really freaked out at the beginning of an audition or super tight we may talk to you to see if you can manage to relax a little bit with us or if that human interaction helps if it doesn't help then we will like 
probably talk to you afterwards or try to say something just to, to see what that, that element is. Um, but it's being able to have some kind of connection with the people in the, in the room is so important for us too. I mean, like we, we want to work with people that we enjoy and we want to give opportunities to people that we think have potential. So, um, and we can't, we can't, like it's so hard to assess that in 10 minutes. So yeah. anything that you can do to help us know a little bit of, more about who you are and what's important to you um, is always going to be helpful for both of us. And, and sometimes we like to laugh that? too. Right, right. You want to have a good time at your job? I do, I do. How are you dealing with that when it comes to the Zoom and YouTube, the live audition, the virtual auditions? Because that's, I feel like that's the the weird part we're in right now. It's like, how do we, as, as performers, the auditioners, um, how do you deal with that when it, if they want to get to know you or you want to get to know them, but you're in this virtual setting? Yeah. That's really hard. And I think that's been one of the things that has been like the great thing about Zoom is that you can do it from everywhere or anywhere. But the hard thing is that we are missing that personal, that real personal connection. Like you yeah. and I can talk like this because we know each other in real life. We've actually right. stood next to each other and had conversations. It's much harder when you're just meeting people in the digital uh, sphere. And then to be vulnerable in this digital sphere can sometimes be even harder, even though we're just in our homes or, right. you know, in our, in our personal spaces. Um, I'm not sure that I have a great answer for it because I think most of the auditions that I have interacted with, um, not all of them for sure, but most of them have been submit a video. They don't happen in real time, except for sometimes a feedback portion of it. Yeah. Um, and I think the, um, like the feedback is always a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because I want to get to know the singer, but what they're asking for is what could I have done better to place better? So it's that they're coming at it from a place of lack mm -hmm. um, and where I'd love for that first conversation to be something where we are just getting on common ground where I get yeah. to know a little bit. So I don't know that I've, I don't know that it's really satisfying um, in a, in a significant way, my answer or the, the, convention to be honest <laughs> because this is something new that that singers are dealing with being home producers now which has largely been Lord. left out of the education as well mm -hmm. as everything else being just new to gear and that kind of stuff do you have any other bits of wisdom when it comes to doing virtual auditions for the singers what you recommend and yeah um you know first of all i commend everybody who has pivoted to like putting their whole life online because it's not it's not easy and because there are there are so many different aesthetics, right? Like mm -hmm. I might produce a video for, um, like I'll put my dog on TikTok because my dog is adorable and TikTok deserves to see him. But the way that I film my dog for TikTok is very different than what I would film for an audition as mm -hmm. far as um, sound quality and as far as composition, right? As far yeah. as formality. I think there is still a little bit of, it's not even formality, but there is um, the conventions for, kind of classical music recording, like that audio piece really needs to be great. And if you're gonna spend time to figure out that, I would I would say that the, the time that you spend figuring out the best way to record yourself and your voice in your space is worth that time. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's uh, singing in with a recording 
in a closet full of your clothes. When I do the radio show um, center stage from Wolf Trap, I always record in my closet. My husband's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, just hanging out, talking to some friends in my closet. In my closet. Um, <laughs> but there's, you know, because of the way that we sing and because of the volume that's needed and because of the the kind of overtones that we need to produce, there is a lot for our these voice spoken only instruments to kind of deal with. So making sure that you've got your gain set so that you're not going to max out those speakers so that we can really hear the beauty of that top when you hit it at that um, at that loud frequency. Um, it's easier it for you to turn up the volume in a smaller set in a quieter section yes. than for it to clip and peak and fuzz out on right. a highly resonant section. Right. I am super happy to play around with my with my volume dial. What I can't do is take that noise and that shattery sound from uh, from something that's been overblown on the top. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, we. As far as visuals go, I'm pretty there are lots of things that I've seen that work as far as, you know, the actual video footage. I would the only caution I might give is to be able to. Um, give yourself a little distance from the camera yes. because I feel sometimes like when you're singing right to your camera, like, like, again, like I would for my TikTok video, right. Um, when you're that close to it, um, it changes the way you sing because the audience is so close mm -hmm. and it also, um, it doesn't give us enough kind of room to process the full sound. It feels a little like, like we're being sung to from our laps. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, it's not necessarily that I need to see like every in every bit of your apartment, but I do think that you'll sing better if the mechanism to which you're singing feels like an audience member feels removed at least a little bit so that you can feel free to use your full instrument to, to capture yeah. what you're wanting to, instead of feeling like I'm singing to my grandma, Nellie, who is sitting in the front row and, yeah. and she's a little deaf. So I'm just going to make sure she really hears it. Um, <laughs> You know, I think it's so it's so hard to kind of know. And again, like this is my perspective and I am just one person. So there yeah. could be somebody out there that has given you the exact opposite advice for a singer, which is maddening that there is no kind of, you know, standard. But I will say, like, as if you look at the the Met guidelines for their auditions and the way they put things together, that's a great starting point. Opera mm -hmm. America has a great resource as far as kind of ways to feng shui your audition, your virtual audition to make sure that you get the best product. Um, for me, because I'm all, it's easier for me to listen additively than reductively. I prefer a slightly drier acoustic. Um, so I love it if you sing in your closet, like that, that brings me joy because I can yeah. imagine what that voice might sound like in my space. Cause I know what my space does to certain voices and certain partials. Um, Whereas if you sing to me in a church where it is really live, I have to try to get through all of that acoustic to actually see, hear what the voice sounds like itself. So it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more of a guessing game, I yeah. think, to be able to to do that. So, I always... so far everything you've said, I uh, I agree from a from a technical standpoint, producer standpoint, agree one hundred percent with. In fact, I literally had this conversation with a singer last night. Um, he was asking me the the dry versus wet recording um he's like how much space do i need in there would you rather like you personally would you rather hear uh a a dry instrument or do you want a lot of reverb and i'm like a lot hides in reverb especially because i know he does his recordings in the church and i was like a lot hides in reverb i would rather have a dry recording 
And I can then guess what that's going to act like in a big space, but it tells me a lot. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be like right up on the microphone. But... <laughs> I'll second that emotion. <laughs> but it just, but... you know, no, understand the, the, the mic you're dealing with and the space that you're in. And, you know, it's funny. Do you, did you ever watch Scrubs? Yes. I love that so, show. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to their podcast, but um, Zach Braff and Donald Faison have a Scrubs podcast that oh my God, they no, started but i am re i'm re-watching the series as we speak like if I you're re-watching like, the series yeah. find their podcast um i can't remember what the name of it's called but you can find it um yeah. it's pretty easy to find they started it in i want to say april last year mm -hmm. and they record from their closets because everybody was on lockdown and so like if they would talk consistently about it because they're one of those podcasts where they just like hit record and just start talking because they're friends <laughs> and everything like they're he's like yeah uh don's like yeah so you know the kid's been kind of crazy and stuff but um i figured it's just it's just gonna go in my closet and i'm gonna shut the door <laughs> and i'm gonna oh. do everything from in here oh my gosh i have it I sounds have... great yeah <laughs> it's funny too like when you talk about that acoustic too there have been a couple folks that i've heard um in some auditions that uh and this actually happened in real life we were at the fine arts building in chicago one year for auditions which is a beautiful room out overlooking lake michigan and it's like listening to people in a bathtub it is Ooh. just like so because it's all hard surfaces um and i remember the the audition monitor that particular year was an alum of the company and we were like we heard the first singer and we're like we're going to ask you to come back to sing your second aria and then we had the monitor come in and we're like we just need you to sing in this space because we actually can't tell what's happening acoustically Yikes. because there was so much reverb and you know i think the singers all really enjoy singing in that room but they like oh, yeah when we went back to listen to the to the audio from that day just to be like was it as bad as we thought or were we just tired um they couldn't match pitch because they couldn't they were picking the wrong partials from the room to like tune to and all of a sudden like the tuning was all wonky and they'd get into an acapella section and be like way off yeah and you can see like when that when the piano came in and they were like oh my god you know because there was just too much to to balance in yeah. that acoustic um and there's something to be said to even with the with the virtual recordings just making sure that the room isn't so live that you lose that that pitch center because if there's yeah. enough if there's enough of that coming back at you especially in an audition se setting when the the stakes are a little higher and you're really kind of focused in a different way on the sound you're making rather than the sound that's coming at you you can pick the wrong thing and end up just just off enough and if you know if intonation is one of those like non-negotiable compulsories like that's the wrong thing to do because yeah. that that put you out of the running before you've even started and finding the mic placement in a really live room is mm, is tricky. ridiculous because yeah. i mean i've i've done live recordings in every space you could possibly imagine from outdoor to cathedral to underground to like everything and i remember doing um a concert that it was a it was an opera concert but there was a, a symphony underneath them and they were doing it in a cathedral and i was like i can't record from back in the house and I can't mic them directly because of the way the room was set up. So I had to, I spent time wandering around with the headphones on to find the sweet spot that I could put that mic. So I got the natural sound, but then also got a little bit of the space because mm -hmm. I timed it and the decay in that room was 4.7 seconds. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, like I, 
I've I've been in spaces like I literally couldn't sing in because the decay was that bad. And I'm like, I can't record in here. And so I ended up finding out the mic placement for that was literally directly over top of the conductor, 12 feet high. And like, that was the sweet spot. When people who don't understand microphones, who are self-producing for the first time, Mm -hmm. throw themselves into a really live space because they feel like they're comfortable in it. Trying to find that mics that the ideal mic placement can also work against you in that setting. All the more reason to go air on the dry side. Um, miking yeah, in a dry I, space is a lot easier to deal with. So much easier to deal with. It is, and I know it's not like nobody. For the record, nobody likes to sing in a dry room. I mm-hmm. totally get it. Like having exactly. at least something come back to you. Like I a hundred percent get it. And for, so, as a singer, you've got to figure out both the pleasure of your experience and what is going to showcase you in the best light and kind of do that dance to kind of whatever whatever makes you feel the most confident again yeah right to like this i like this room and i think it's dry enough great that's it probably is it, it probably, probably is. is if it's yeah. if it's the if it's the fine arts building in chicago on on lake michigan i would uh, it's a beautiful room and you should visit. It's got a beautiful elevator. It's it's really lovely, but I would not record your auditions there. You can have rehearsal there. I don't care, but you know, you I would not re- do your auditions there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time today with me and, and chatting delight. about all these wonderful things and being on this particular episode. Um, where can people find Wolf Trap and what you guys are doing? Mm-hmm. So our season announce is coming out in just a few weeks. Um, we've done a member announce, but we are planning to have some opera in the park this summer, which is really Excellent. exciting. Um, you'll be able to find that announcement on April 26th at org. If you're interested in contributing to Artist Relief Tree to help artists struggling with COVID-19 shutdowns, please visit artistrelieftree.com. This has been an episode of This Artistic Life. Find us on your favorite podcast apps and subscribe. Follow This Artistic Life on Instagram at This Artistic Life and on Twitter at Artistic Vita. For more information on today's guest, visit our website, thisartisticpodcast.com.